Welcome to the 4th Down Experience, the podcast devoted to special teams. Your host of the 4th Down Experience, former pro free agent, nine-year professional kicking coach out of the Midwest, Coach Chris Hughesby. Alongside Coach Chris Hughesby is a former two-time Arena Bowl champ, nine-year pro kicking coach, rep in the South, Coach Brian Jackson. What's up, 40 Nation? Chris Hughesby here and Brian Jackson. How you doing, Brian? Doing good, man. Excited. Good. Well, we're excited, guys. We got a little change of pace in our interview here. We are interviewing a Tampa Bay Buccaneer sideline reporter, also the host of Three Dog Night podcast, longtime radio and broadcast personality in the Buccaneers. We have TJ Reeves on the podcast here. How are you doing, TJ? It's great to be with you, and Three Dog Night actually was the group, Three Dog oh. Thursday was the <laughs> podcast, that's okay, a lot of people a lot of people make mention of, I should use that as my theme song, uh, and uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you guys, I, we got connected uh, recently, and I said to myself, and I've said it to you guys, what a great idea for a podcast, that you guys focus on fourth down, with the punters, the place kickers, the holders, everybody that's involved on, on fourth down, I love it, so I'm thrilled to be with you and have fun talking about kicks. But obviously, you've had a, a fair share of kicks and, and punts and special teams uh, plays that you've gotten to see over the last 15 plus years there in, in Tampa, so we're excited to hear some, some pretty cool stories. Are you saying that we've been through a kicker or two, Brian, in Tampa Bay? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's hard to fathom that a team would start six consecutive NFL seasons with a different kicker, but that's what my Buccaneers have done. Think about that. So all these kickers that you see, and, and granted, there's been a, a, a lot of flux and a lot of change with kickers in recent years, but... Usually for a lot of these teams, you can rely on seeing the same kicker. You're associating that kicker with that team. The Bucks have had a different guy to start the year six years in a row. So we uh, we drafted a kicker out of the University of Utah that you guys know in Matt Gay. Um, and I believe you had him on your show previously. And so far, so good for the most part for him, including making the long ones. He's got a rocket for a leg. So he is... Uh, he is the latest guy to get in there, and we hope that we're talking about Matt Gay for years and years and years to come in Tampa Bay. Well, I think one of the biggest uh, decisions you guys, you know, made as an organization is uh, is bringing in, you know, Coach Boniel. You know, he's played in the NFL, won a Super Bowl. He's been a kicking coach, you know. So I think having him there and kind of leading the ships in the, in the special teams realm, I think, you know, it helped with that for sure. Well, what's interesting is you got a new staff with Bruce Arians, and Keith Armstrong is the special teams coach, the overall coordinator, special teams coordinator, who came from the Atlanta Falcons. And, and this is really one of the first times the Bucks have had an official kicking coach or a kicking specialist coach. And, and Chris has come in that role, and obviously somebody that's been there, done that in the NFL at a very high level for a lot of years is going to be able to impart some wisdom, but guys, especially on a rookie, because you can say whatever you want about the University of Utah and the Pac-12 and college football, but it is a totally different situation stepping into the NFL, and especially in this situation, because it has been so volatile with kickers and missed kicks and crucial missed kicks and guys that you bring in as a free agent and get rid of and guys you draft and get rid of, uh, very famously with Roberto Aguayo from Florida State. 
You know, last year they spent $3 million guaranteed on Chandler Cantanzaro uh, to come in as a free agent who would kick for the Cardinals and a kick for the Jets. And Chandler didn't even last half the season before he began to miss extra points and field goals. Uh, I mean, there was even a bizarre game against the Cleveland Browns last year where he could have won the game on the final play of regulation from about 45 yards. If I remember correctly, it was like 43, 45 yards. Definitely in good conditions, an easy kick by most standards. Not wind, not rain, not bad conditions. He misses. He missed the 44-yarder, 45-yarder, whatever it was. We go to sudden death overtime, and he ends up lining one up, guys, from 59-5-9, which at that time was the longest game-winning overtime field goal in NFL history. I don't know if it's since been tied or surpassed. You guys may know that better. He missed the 45-yarder so he could make the 59-yarder in sudden death to win the game and give TJ the happy post-game show on the radio after it was over with. Um, but, but again, uh, to your point, Boniel's been there, has seen all this, has lived it, and hopefully he can impart that on Matt Gay as this uh, season uh, unfolds and as Matt Gay's career unfolds. I'm curious here, over the last few years, and, I, and a lot of it is the rise and the pressure of the extended PAT to make it longer, you know, to make things more exciting. You know, you're on the media side of things. How do you handle, you know, the, the specialist quirks and the, the, the missed kicks and all that stuff from a media side? Like, do you try to be impartial because you're, you're a Bucks guy when you're going through the woes, or do you have to be supportive of the Bucks? Like, I'm just kind of curious from a media side what it's like. Because for Brian and I, we get the misses, we understand the pressures, and a lot of the general folks, you know, don't really get it, you know, how hard it really is to kick a, a ball like that. Oh, there's no doubt, and I have empathy uh, for what I've seen because you get to know these guys personally, too. And you know they don't want to go out there and mess this up and screw this up. Uh, and you, you make a great point. I mean, when the NFL moved that extra point back to where, to where it's now, what, a 37-yard kick, moving back to the 20-yard line, uh, it has completely screwed with the psyche of so many reliable kickers because now they miss one of those and it's in your head. And it's such a it's such a position of psychology, uh, as you guys have lived and you talk about on your podcast all the time, that when you start putting a negative in there that you missed a kick during a game, uh, that is tough to shake. And that, that's been the undoing of several of these Buccaneer kickers. Uh, we, we brought a guy in uh, in this in this whole uh, barrage of kickers being brought in named Kyle Brinza, who you're probably familiar with, who kicked at Notre Dame and he kicked for the Detroit Lions. So the Bucks traded for Brinza, traded a draft pick. For Kyle Brinza and brought him in in a, in a preseason situation. Uh, he came in for the final preseason game and, and kicked like a 55-yarder in his first preseason game and kicked the game-winning field goal in the preseason finale. So you're thinking, okay, you're onto something. He's got, a, he's got a rocket leg. He showed up, and if I remember correctly, in like week one, he missed an extra point. And then he missed, a, in the same game, he missed a field goal later in the game. And then, and then the next week, I think he missed another extra point. And you could just see at that point, any time that he was lining up for the extra point, it's in his head. I've already missed a couple of these. Uh, and Kyle Brenza, I, I wish I could tell you that it worked out. He lasted like four or five games. He couldn't make a kick anymore. And so they had to move on and try to find another kicker that year. So uh, I, I have been there. I have seen it. And, uh, you know, a great story earlier this year, not, not great in the ending. It, you never know. The, the Bucks were trying to put the game away with the New York Giants. Daniel Jones' first start as a Giants quarterback. 
he scores on a fourth down play, fourth and like seven, fourth and goal at like the seven. He scores on a quarterback draw to give them the lead with less than a minute to go. Bucks still gain field goal range, complete a long pass to Mike Evans, get the clock stopped. They now have the chance to kick the winning field goal and the rookie Matt Gay's lining it up. And I, I got to admit, I'm, I'm standing there, down there already calculating, okay, we're going to talk to Jameis Winston after the game. We're going to talk to Gay because he's won the game with a field goal. Then we're going to try to talk to this guy. And then lo and behold, the kick is no good. And so, and so now you've lost. And the Giants are running on the field. And now you've got to totally adapt. What is your post-game show? You feel for these guys because you're standing there looking at him and he's doubled over. He's bent over. He missed the game-winning kick. Um, you know, it's funny because they showed Bruce Arians' reaction two or three different times on, on national TV and whatever where he's got the arm up because he thinks the field goal's good. I got I to gotta confess, guys, I had kind of the same reaction. I was off camera. I'm like, okay, we're winning. Okay, that's wide right. It's no good. And now you've lost. So uh, it, it's tough. It's a tough position. It's a, it's a mentally taxing situation um but in my case i want them to make them all because uh it makes for it makes for happy interviews after it's all over with when they're knocking them through right absolutely i mean it's tough too i mean obviously everyone wants to make that kick and you know it's unfortunately for matt because he had a good game you know he was he was kicking well and just obviously everyone remembers that particular kick but um Going back to the extra point thing with it moving back to 33 yards so we we went and visited john carney uh, back in March, uh, I went up there and chatted with him for a week just to learn more uh, from the 23-year veteran. And um, one thing he mentioned that, that stuck with me is what he tells these free agent guys now is to stop viewing them as extra points because, you know, those those have the, the stigma or stereotype, perception, whatever you want to call it, of, you know, makeable kicks. You're, you're supposed to make all these extra points. You know, they're automatic. So if you keep that same mindset – but you just moved back 13 yards, you know, that, that's a little different. So he, he, he trains free agents out there as treating it like going out to kick a regular field goal. So instead of, instead of saying in the mindset of, I need to be 77 for 77 on pass this year, you can't, you have to get yourself out of that mindset or, or, or you know, 60 or 42 of 45 on pass this year. You got to get out of that mindset. You need to treat literally every single place kick opportunity, whether it's an extra point or field goal, you need to treat them all like you're going out to kick a field goal. And that's what he, he now trains free agents out there and guys are, that are now playing or, or get cut and come back out to him um, to treat those extra points like regular field goals. And that's, that's one thing that I thought was pretty cool. And John Carney, by the way, many years ago, because I'm older, in the late 1980s, a kicker briefly with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers among his other teams. So, that's a that's a name that lasted a long time. Uh, most known kicked, I think, for the Chargers. Also kicked for a long time with the Saints. So uh, he he did it for a long time, and that's somebody you should absolutely uh, listen to on the psychology of, of making those. And it, it really undid Roberto Aguayo. Aguayo again was an All American at Florida State. The Buccaneers put pressure on him, admittedly so, by drafting him in the second round. That's, that's something that you don't see as much anymore in the modern NFL. I mean, the NFL in the 70s and the 80s, they would take kickers in the first round all the time. There, there was a time. You guys can look this up and your audience can look this up. This is, I'm becoming an old fart, guys. Uh, back in the, in the late 70s, the, uh, the New Orleans Saints drafted a kicker out of the University of Texas 
named Russell Erksleben. Erksleben, I still remember the name, could, could place kick, could kick off, and could punt. They took him, I believe, in the top ten of the NFL draft. Think about that. Wow. A kicker, that versatile, yes, punter, place kicker, kickoff guy. They took him in the top ten as a weapon for the NFL draft. That's unheard of in the modern NFL. You may see a guy go in the first round, but it's probably second round at the earliest that you're going to see a kicker anymore. And Aguayo had that pressure on him, and and right away in the preseason, he missed an extra point in the first game. And he missed another short field goal in the preseason, and it just began to creep in. And he made some kicks in the, in the preseason and made some lengthy ones, and he made a couple of clutch ones in his rookie year, but he also missed a clutch one in his rookie year, too. And it was just a roller coaster, uh, especially towards the end of his rookie year. And he didn't even make it to the second season. He got, he got cut after the first preseason game because they just could not deal with the drama anymore of, is he going to miss easy kicks when we start the regular season again? We don't trust him. We don't, we don't believe in it. So... The extra point, I know we've kind of gotten on that tangent, the extra point is a big part of that now. It's a big part of that psychology. Yeah, and Roberto, he went to a high school camp of mine and down here in southern Alabama, and then he actually stopped a couple of my camps when he was in college. And um, I, The one thing that I've been really impressed with him is he's actually been training with, with John Carney out in San Diego, and he's really uh, tightened some things up. He, had, he kind of had that really hardcore crunch, when he made contact with the ball, he would crunch and collapse his body down and kind of hop around on his plant knee. And he's kind of taken that out. Uh, he looks a lot more smooth and clean, and he just got drafted in the XFL. So I'm hoping the XFL um, goes off and, and does well again, you know, just doesn't pull an AAF or you know, <laughs> all these other leagues that have tried. Obviously, XFL has history, but uh, he did get drafted. So I'm hoping he can he can bounce back and, and kind of prove. Because, I mean, that, the AAF, you know, they only played... I think six games, six or seven games, it was enough for some of these guys to, to get back in it and get some looks. So um, one thing I, I found interesting, you know, you've been there for a long time. Maybe run through uh, some kickers, some notable kickers in your history of announcing games and maybe some funny stories. You know, Mark Matica, Michael Houston, <laughs> anything like that. I don't know how long you normally go on your podcast. We could go for like an hour on Buccaneer Kickers. I love Martin Gramatica. Uh, he is special. He's still around uh, in this area. In fact, Martin and I live near uh, each other, and, and we would see each other at the elementary school. His kids are the same age. In fact, one of his sons uh, has been in, in school with one of my twin daughters in one of the elementary school classes. So we would see each other all the time. And Martin's now doing some radio uh, in and around here, still beloved. Uh, he was the kicker on the Super Bowl team. And, I, you know, I still remember when he first showed up uh, with all of those antics. And he had been doing this at Kansas State, by the way, uh, as a kicker in college. But then he shows up with the Buccaneers, and as soon as he's making a field goal, he's running around celebrating like you've just won the Super Bowl on a regular season kick. But part of that mentality, I don't know if you guys know this, do you know where those celebrations, where they were born out of, where they came from, what the genesis of that is, for all the Grammaticas, because they would all do it. Um, it, they looked at that because they had a soccer background and they, they, uh, their, their families from Argentina, their father, their mother from Argentina, immigrants to the United States. Um, they looked at that as like scoring a soccer goal. And when you scored a soccer goal, you were not just 
ho-humming it. You were going to go celebrate. You were going to go run around with antics, with flips. Whenever you watch these goals in big-time European soccer matches or South American soccer matches, they go crazy when they score. And so that's why the Grammaticas were looking at it as any time I put that ball through those yellow goalposts, I'm going to celebrate like I scored a goal in a soccer game. Never mind the fact that Martin would sometimes be called upon to kick four or five field goals in a game celebrating like that. So uh, it, it was always neat to be around him. He was so enthusiastic uh, when he kicked and when he played. I, I know this. Here's a great trivia nugget for you and, and for your audience. In the Super Bowl season of 2002, he became the first kicker in the history of the NFL to have three 50-plus yard field goals in the same game. So the game at Carolina where Martin, it was a low-scoring game. It ended up being like a 12-10 game, 12-9 game. He kicked four field goals for that Gruden team, and three of them were over 50 yards. So he became the first kicker in NFL history to have three 50-plus yard field goals in the same game. And, of course, he had the classic nickname, Automatica Grammatica. Unfortunately, and we joke with him about it, he knows this, when he began to miss, guys, he, of course, became semi-automatica grammatica. <laughs> <laughs> this is starting to happen. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's, there's a bunch of stories. Yeah, sure. With, with your experience with Gruden, and, and kickers, what's it like kicking for for Gruden? Like from your experiences, like it, like if you miss or miss a few, would Gruden just chew them out? He was he was always uh, very very animated on the sideline, and he'd be the first one to admit that he wasn't the most patient guys with kickers. Because here we go again with what we were talking about earlier. They drafted Sebastian Janikowski in the first round in Oakland. Al Davis did it. And, of course, Davis ran the whole show, the late the late legendary owner of the Raiders. So Gruden had to accept that. This is his first head coaching job. We've taken a kicker in the first round. And Janikowski really struggled at the beginning of his rookie season. And, and Gruden had a conversation with Al Davis where he basically said, this is driving me crazy. I need a veteran. I need somebody to push this guy. I, I want... Uh, you know, I, I want to feel confident that if the game is on the line, we're going to make the kick here in my strategy and in my thinking. And Al Davis basically said to him, give, give this kid the opportunity. He's, he's, you know, he's going to pull through. He's going to be great. And sure enough, the guy ends up having what, like a 19 year career pro bowl over and over again, kick for the Raiders in the Super Bowl, ironically against Gruden when he had come to Tampa Bay with the Bucks. But Gruden's Gruden is the first one to admit I was ready to give up on Sebastian Janikowski, who's had a borderline hall of fame career uh, since then. So, yeah, and, and obviously at the end of Martin's tenure here, and Martin went on to kick for several other teams. He kicked for the Cowboys, he kicked for the New Orleans Saints uh, as well for a couple more years in the NFL. Uh, you know, he, he became frustrated with kickers. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's not any different with a lot of these other coaches that they, they don't have a lot of tolerance if you're not going to make it. It's your job, especially from 50 and in. It's your job to make those more times than not, 19 out of 20 in, in good conditions, especially indoor conditions, you should be making those. So um, that's their attitude. You talk about stories. I, I, you know, I, I know I'm, I'm going on and on with stories, but you'll, you'll love this. So my family moved to Florida in 1983. I'm a teenager. I'm in middle school in 1983. The, the Buccaneers at that time had been good and had, had uh, risen to prominence in the late 70s, but now this would be the beginning of an awful stretch, an odyssey of bad football starting in that 1983 season, little did we know. 
So I move here in 83 at the Tampa Bay area, and I go to my first NFL games that season. I'd never lived in an NFL market before. So that year, at the end of that season, the Buccaneers are playing the Green Bay Packers, and it's an awful year for the Bucs where they had only won like one or two games or at the end of the season. And this is Monday Night Football uh, back in the day, which was such a huge day. It was the, it was the only primetime game that was on. They're playing the Green Bay Packers. So the Bucks score in the final minute of the game, trailing 9-3. to three. They score, guys, what is apparently going to be the game-winning touchdown in the final minute. Time the game at 9. The Bucks had another Florida State kicker that predated Roberto Aguayo named Bill Capiz. Capiz was a very famous Florida State kicker, an all-conference kicker. They had, I believe they had drafted Bill Capiz the year before or a couple years before, but he had struggled some to make some kicks. He had struggled even in that season. Bill Capiz comes out with the old-school extra point from the two-yard line and yanks the game-winning extra point wide left. No good. And the Bucks go to sudden death overtime and lose the game when the legendary Hall of Fame kicker Jan Stenerud blasts one through for Green Bay to win. And in the losing locker room, John McKay, the very quotable, lovable Bucks coach, who would, who would constantly make fun of his old, own team with his quotes and comments. He got asked one time about how bad the Bucks were. Somebody asked him, Coach, what about the execution of your team? McKay's line, I'm all in favor of it. So, so these are the kind of things McKay would say about his own players. So he comes in after Capice has missed the extra point, and a, and a reporter says, Coach, I, I, I hate that we have to begin on this, but what about the missed extra point? And he says, well, I'm just going to tell you what I've, what I've already said to, to the team here. He goes, you can't lose a game like that, and Capiz is kaput. It's over. <laughs> he basically oh, wow. was announcing in the post-game conference <laughs> that he's know. cutting Bill Capiz. Capiz is kaput was the headline in the paper the next day, guys. After the Monday night loss, Capiz is kaput. So that was my, my start to the Buccaneer uh, woes and kicking woes, and hopefully they will get better. It, it has been better at times. I mean, Martine was a phenomenal kicker. Matt Bryant, who's still kicking in the NFL with the Falcons, was fantastic here with Tampa Bay kicking. Another guy that you guys know, Connor Barth, was a tremendous kicker here for about three or four seasons. So there have been stretches where it actually has been good here, and hopefully it will be again. What was one of your uh, favorite post-game? I know you probably have a ton, but like, what, what stands out in your mind right now, post-game, interviews with a kicker I, the first one that comes to mind speaking of matt bryant and the hair on the back of my neck is standing up right now because uh i'm a parent and brian i don't know about you but i know chris is as well yeah. um to to go through something like what the bryants went through and this was it this was at the time they had children already they were they were about to have another child um at the same time that my wife and i were going to have twins and so uh, we knew the Bryants, we knew Matt and Melissa a little bit and knew that they were having their baby, uh, baby Trison, T-R-Y-S-O-N, was their baby. And, and unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of your audience may know this, you guys may know this, the baby died suddenly, sudden infant death syndrome, after, after like only two weeks, two or three weeks. I remember died. that. Horrible, horrible situation. So he leaves, he leaves the team on like a Monday when this happened or a Tuesday when this happened and everybody's on eggshells because he wants to come back and play in the game Sunday against the green Bay Packers. And so, uh, this is Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, uh, you know, coming into town and 
it's a wild game and, and Matt is there and Matt made a field goal early in the game. You know, that, you know, he had talked about, the, you know, the Bucks flew the entire team, anybody that wanted to go to Texas to the funeral for this infant. And they did that on a Friday and came back, came back on Saturday and Matt wanted to kick in the game. He had made a field goal earlier in the game. Well, now as, as you know, only Hollywood could write it, he's lining up for the game winning kick uh, with a chance to win the game from about 35, 40 yards, as I remember it, something like that. And he blasted that ball through, guys, and he pointed up to the sky, and I about lost it. I'm about to lose it now. I about lost it, standing there watching that. And so now I am interviewing him after the game. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about minutes after this has happened on the field, and he's, he's been mobbed, and we go inside, and we're now doing the live locker room show. I ask him, how, what did you think about – how did you try in your own head to reconcile the game is on the line here and keep calm and keep your routine? And he said, I kept thinking about everybody is going to remember this moment no matter what happens. And I want to honor my son. And I went, wow. And now he chokes up on the air, guys. And I, it was one of the few times I've ever done this. I put my arm around him and said, and said it's okay. And, and he said, I honored my son today and we won the game wow wow so when you talk about when you talk about stories and things you remember that's about an 11 or 12 year old story right now and i will remember that forever so thank you for letting me share that with you on fourth down experience how about that absolutely yeah yeah we had we had my matt bryant earlier on on the about a little over a year ago and he was he was phenomenal one of the one of the, my favorite lines he would say, and I think it just sits with a lot of young kickers, is he said uh, when he was still trying to make it in the league, and he got a taste and then would go back, he'd be in Texas, and he'd just drive around, and he would have a couple footballs and, and a stand or whatever, and he would just find a he'd, he'd be driving around and find a field with some trees, and you know, find some thick grass, and just get out there and just start kicking. You know, in between in between trees, like out in pastures and out in random forests and stuff, and I just like love that because I'll, I'll see on Instagram and Twitter, I'll see kids just in their backyard just <laughs> posting videos of them kicking between trees. I like, I love it. I'm like, that was probably 25, 30 years ago, and there's still kids doing that to this day. And it just it's sweet because it gives kids hope. You know, if if a guy was doing that 25, 20, 25, 30 years ago. You're doing that now, and you're seeing him. He's he's right up there, you know, playing for such a long time, just like Ben and Terry. I mean, um, you know, everyone focuses on Adam so much that Matt Bryant and some of these guys that have been playing for a while don't get as much credit. He's, he's a fantastic kicker as well. Hey, he uh, I know he missed one against Arizona uh, at missed an extra point. Here we go again with the Mr. Extra, missed extra points. They ended up losing a one-point game, and he was you could tell he was devastated. Because he knew when he missed that kick, they had made a big comeback. They had been down by 14 and got a chance to tie, and he missed the kick. Um, uh, and they're having a rough season, obviously, in Atlanta. But to be 43 years old and out there uh, and to have taken care of his body the way that he has and still be knocking him through, I mean, it says a lot for that guy. I still remember he made a 62-yard game winner, which at the time he did make that. That was the 06 season against the Eagles at home. We'll remember that one forever as well. Uh, it was the second longest field goal only behind Tom Dempsey at that time for the win. I believe there have been a couple others now since then that have been longer. 
than 63 yards, but he made a 62-yarder against the Eagles. And the, the one thing I remember about that, two things I remember about that, the sound was different. The thud when he kicked the ball sounded like one of the cannon bla- ba- uh, blasts from the Buccaneer pirate ship. The sound, I still remember the sound of that kick, the thud. The second thing is you're, you're used to the ball being in the air and going towards the goalposts. But in this instance, it's in the air so much longer for another for another second, almost second and a half. And you're standing there, and you get an extra second and a half to go. Is that there? Is that long enough? Is that going to get there? And then everybody obviously goes and mobs him. Uh, what a moment when the Bucks pulled that out with a 62-yard field goal. Uh, again, that's John Gruden uh, getting to run to midfield. He's thinking, you know, a minute before that, I've got to go have the the losing handshake with Andy Reid, but instead he got to have the winning handshake, and that was a very happy locker room after a 62-yarder for the win from Matt Bryant. I'm curious, you know, being in the media, you're always having to interview guys and probably do the pregame type of interview to kind of learn a little insight so that you can share it during the game. Just curious, how close do you actually get to the players in terms of, like, relationship and all that type of stuff? And then do you stay in touch with them maybe after they leave or get traded or released or retired? The, the answer is I am close, but I'm not their friend, let's say. We don't socialize. We don't hang out for the most part, especially when they're active. I'm close enough to them that they know who I am. They know I have a job to do, and, and 99% of the time, they are fantastic, even in defeated, at being willing to stand and just talk with me for a minute because they know I'm there for a couple questions, and that's it. I'm not going to interrogate them. I'm not going to beat them up. Uh, about anything that happened in the game, especially, you know, Matt Gay after that loss. Uh, you know, I, I was with him, and the media surrounded us with cameras on and with everything, and he was a little wide-eyed, but he handled himself like a pro. And he knew when he saw me standing there that I, I'm the first one that's there, and it's going to be the easiest with me for two or three questions. So that's good. But, yeah, I, I do get a chance after these guys retire and stuff, and I've seen them a bunch. Uh, I'm around them, and, and we socialize. We, we might go to dinner. Or I see them at events, at golf tournaments, and those kind of things, and we love to joke around about stories and about different stuff or see them at games. Uh, I mentioned Martin. Martin is now doing commentary on the Spanish broadcast of our Buccaneer games, uh, and we'll set as a goal to try to get him on with you later on here on your, uh, on your podcast, but he's now calling the games, not just the kicks. He's calling the whole game as an analyst for the games, and so... Martin, I've been giving Martin some advice uh, here and there on, on what to talk about and, and things to, to add into, and uh, he's doing, by all accounts, again, I'm not fluent in Spanish, he's doing a great job. Uh, he's got a guy named Carlos that calls the game with him, and Carlos gets as animated as Martin does, and the two of them get going, and it's, all, it's almost like a screaming contest when a big play happens for the Bucks. so it's a lot of fun. But anyway, I, I'm around Martin a bunch at the games, because he's there, so it's neat. It's neat to be around those guys, uh, especially the former players, uh, and get to see them. And uh, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, Buccaneer heroes, guys, guys that helped this team uh, win a Super Bowl, like a Derek Brooks or a Warren Sapp, that still live around the area, and you see them a bunch uh, at the different games. So and get to reminisce. Just another sign, guys, that I'm getting old. That's, that's another thing. So we're around all these guys. It's another reminder of how long I've been doing all this. TJ, have, uh, in all your years of experience uh, of doing this with the Bucks, have you ever had to interview a long snapper, and what was it about? That's a good question. Not usually with the long snapper unless he makes a play in the game, like a tackle, etc. And, of course, uh, you know, if it's a bad snap, 
with the game on the line, I've never had that one where it's a, it's a bad snap that costs you. Now, what's interesting is our radio analyst, Dave Moore, uh, became a long snapper later in his career to hang on for a lot more years in the NFL. So it's kind of funny you ask that. I get to talk to a long snapper on the radio every week, and he talks about snapping in different situations. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, we had a situation come up in the uh, in the in the win that we had over the Rams at the LA Coliseum, where one of our players on a punt block uh, or on a field goal block, they were trying a field goal. The Rams. He not only lined up over the center, but he chucked the center, which is an absolute no-no. It's been forbidden for years. And Dave Moore jumped in right away and said, "As an ex-snapper, I really appreciated that rule, and that rule has been there forever." that you not only can't hit him, you can't even line up over him anymore. It's illegal formation if you line up over him in the NFL and in college. So uh, because of what teams have begun to do, cheap shotting the guy and allowing other people to jump over the top after you do it. So, uh, yeah, I get to talk with the, you know, the, the answer to your question is I get to be around a long snapper and talk to him all the time. And he's got great insight on everything because he played tight end for a lot of years in the NFL in addition to snapping. So I get to hear all of those stories. It's a lot of fun. Well, let's flip to the, pun- to the punter side. Any punters uh, that you can think of uh, have an interview? Any of them? I have on uh, on some occasions. Uh, there's different there's different ones. Um, Michael Kanan was a was a great one because Kanan could punt. He could kick long field goals and kick off. And and Kanan got a blockbuster contract to come as a free agent. He kicked for the Atlanta Falcons. He got a huge contract to sign with us. As a free agent, I, I want to say he got somewhere in the neighborhood of $13 million guaranteed over the course of like a five or six year deal. Uh, and ended up kicking here for about four or five years. And I remember I did a radio show with Kanan where he was the guest. And and he didn't know that I, you know, because I'm a radio veteran, I, I knew where I was going with the question. I started asking him about jobs that he had had in his life and growing up. And he started talking about painting houses that he, that he uh, grew up in eastern Washington uh, where he played college football eventually, and he, he would paint houses, and he and his buddies would paint houses, and they would split like a, a hundred bucks between them, or sometimes 75 bucks between them. So they'd paint a house all day and maybe get like $25 or, or $40 out of it. And so I then led him to so, what is it like when an agent and an NFL team puts a contract in front of you to sign and you're looking at? $13 million guaranteed to kick. And he goes, it's one of the, he goes, I have no way to describe it. He goes, it's one of the craziest feelings in the world that I'm about to sign something that's going to pay me that kind of money. So the answer is yes. I've been, I've been around and have interviewed some different punters and kickers, and it's just, it's fun to reminisce and talk about the stories with these guys. TJ, I'm curious, earlier in the conversation here we were talking about the the good and the bad for the kickers and 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 obviously we've talked about some of the relationships you build i'm just curious two-part question i guess uh either from a coach's perspective when you're talking to them about the kicking game and then the actual specialist on the buccaneers and you don't obviously have to say who said what but like what are some sort of insight comments that you hear that like the coaches say about special teams or the specialists and then obviously what the kickers and punters say maybe some positive some fears and that type of thing to to give like the listeners some real insight on kickers well to give you an idea they they map out strategy uh, all the time according to field position according to conditions according to historical stuff about where they've played i mean they know in certain stadiums 
uh, you know, we played in the preseason in Pittsburgh, and so they have one end that's closed with three decks on the stadium, kind of make it like a horseshoe if you visualize it. The other end is kind of open, where it only has one level of stands, and then it's kind of open-ended with a video board. And it's well known in Pittsburgh that that end it's a lot uh, more unpredictable on the conditions, on the wind, and that kind of stuff when you're going that way. And so even in the preseason, that had been part of the conversation about you know, kicking, and there was a kicking competition, obviously, with Matt Gay, the rookie. So those, those kind of things, my point is, are things that they're going over. They, they will know on a windy day in Tampa Bay uh, where the wind will occasionally swirl around inside of Raymond James Stadium. Do you want to kick towards the pirate ship here in the uh, in the fourth quarter or not? They're planning that out on on if you win the toss and you uh, and you elect to defer and which which way do you want to be kicking in the fourth quarter with how the wind's going? So there is a there is a lot of strategy that's uh, that's involved and and a lot of times the coaches now trust whoever that kicker is in particular. Wh- where do you want it placed? What do you want? You know what do you want? In terms of distance, where are you good from? They know where where uh, where a guy, you know, where a guy is good from. Uh, uh, you know, can he make it from fifty five? You know, in that game case, he's now made five field goals this year of fifty yards plus. He made a fifty eight yarder at the LA Coliseum. So they will come to a guy pregame and say, "What you know? What's the number?" And he might say fifty six, or he might say fifty eight, or whatever. That's where I can make it from. Have that in the back of your mind. As the game unfolds, you know, they'll come to him again in the in the fourth quarter if it's close and say, you know, what's the number? And the number, you know, he'll tell him. I can make it from 56. I can make it from 58. Gabe will probably tell him he can make it from 62. A lot of these guys have not gotten that confident with the game on the line. So it is, it is interesting. We talked earlier in the conversation about how sophisticated it's become with, with kicking specialist coaches and how much strategy they put into it and what they do now with kickoffs and and strategy with that and punts. I mean, so many times now the punt is an end-over-end punt. It didn't used to be that way in the NFL, but that's by strategy because they get a, they get a little better bounce a lot of the time. If the if the returner doesn't come up with the ball, you're going to get a forward bounce more often than not with an end-over-end punt. So you see numerous times uh, the teams now, if they're at the 50 or thereabouts, they're going to kick an end-over-end punt for that reason. So... It's just interesting how the strategy has changed, and they do spend a lot of time on it, guys. Oh, that's awesome. Do you, uh, I, I, based on some of your comments, I'm assuming you travel with the team, right? That's correct. I'm with them, and I'm around them all the time and on the road. And we've, we've had some adventures. We've already been in Los Angeles this year. We've been in London this year. We'll go to Nashville at the time that we're taping right now to play the Titans, and we will eventually also go to Seattle in the near future, too. So the Buccaneer World Tour continues. Yes. Nice. Uh, well, one of our staple questions we ask everybody, and this is a new twist because we never interviewed a, like a broadcast sideline analyst, but uh, one question we ask everybody is, uh, tell us your five favorite stadiums you've ever been wow. in. Wow. That is a great question. All right, so uh, definitely for nostalgia's sake, I loved going to Old Candlestick Park where the 49ers won all those Super Bowls. Got the chance to be in there a couple of times. Now, I would love to lie to you and tell you that that was a really nice stadium. It was a dump. They <laughs> needed to have a new stadium in San Francisco, but it was neat for the history uh, to be around that one because you watched it growing up so many times with Joe Montana and the 49ers succeeding in that stadium. So to get to go be around that. 
Um, I, I'm kind of, you know, again, I'm getting older. I'm kind of a history buff on loving being around the old Texas stadium, not the new one. Now you have the new one, which is a, a palace. It's humongous in Dallas, AT&T Stadium. Kind of partial to that one as, uh, as an older one. Uh, the, the new stadiums that have come online, Minnesota Stadium, and I know, Chris, you're there in Minnesota, that U.S. Bank Stadium is fantastic with kind of the glass half roof that they have there that lets the light in. Mm-hmm. That was neat. Uh, we go every year to Charlotte, Atlanta, and New Orleans in the in the division. The Superdome is always the loudest. It's the craziest. Seattle, as I mentioned, will be there in a couple of weeks. It's very loud for an outdoor stadium. And, of course, the weather always is seemingly bad later on in the year in those. But that's a neat stadium to go to. So uh, there's, there's an idea. There's a taste. Uh, you know, we've been to Arrowhead Stadium and played the Chiefs. I've, I've worked a couple of games in there, and we've never, how about this, the Buccaneers have never lost in their history to the Kansas City Chiefs in the regular season. Perfect. Have won every game, home and away. So the two times we've been to Arrowhead, we won the game, uh, including uh, winning, uh, winning in dramatic fashion back in 2016, coming from behind to beat them. So Arrowhead rocks and rolls as well, loud uh, big time environment, so it's it's fun to be around all these different venues. But I, I kind of am sentimental. I, I love uh, some of the older ones that have now gone offline, or they've blown the stadium up uh, back in the day. Nice. So, yeah, those are I love that. And Candlestick, that's a popular one that we get. Hey, I wanted to go back uh, to when we were talking about kickoffs and punts. So I got a couple questions here. I guess first is just what you've been seeing over the years, of just being involved with football and calling games and seeing where the kickoffs going and safety uh cte etc um you know what what are your thoughts and opinions about kickoffs and punts are they going to stick around they're going to keep improvising are they going to take it out will field goals get taken out will you know will goalposts not be there i mean that seems drastic but what's your take on kickoffs punts field goals moving forward i kickoffs will probably diminish more and more they're becoming less of a play um you know, there's so many of them now that are just touchbacks. Uh, you know, the game the game in London, for example, we did not have a kickoff return. All those points that were scored in a, in a game that finished uh, whatever it was, 38-27 or whatever the final was, it had a bunch of touchdowns, a bunch of field goals. There was not a kickoff return the entire game because Bradley Pinion for us and uh, the, uh, it escapes me. I think the Carolina kickoff guy is Sly, the, the rookie kicker that they have, but they Correct. have a different kickoff guy. Yep, Sly. You guys would, yeah, you guys would probably know better than me. But there were there were no runbacks in that game, so it has become de-emphasized. The injuries have become obviously less because of it. Um, you know, they they've got every incentive to take a touchback because the ball's out at the twenty-five. And so many of the stats show the returner's not going to get out to the 25. So, so teams are just willing to take that. Um, and I think, you know, punting is obviously a huge part of the game. And I don't, I don't think anytime soon that that's going to be done away with. So I think the, those will both be around. I think, I think um, it's, a, it's a key part. Fourth down has always been a key part to games. Uh, the teams that have been good on special teams, being able to make kicks, cover kicks, etc., have always had an advantage, and I, I think it should stay that way as part of the game. So then you wonder, you know, if you, if I want to gain an extra roster spot here with a position player, and I'm taking kickoffs, which is you're exerting the most energy and force out of the three skill sets of kicking and running, kickoffs, field goals, punts, you exert the most force and energy on a kickoff. 
all right, that's going to take the most energy out of you. You take that away, hypothetically. Now I can save a spot if I can have a guy do punting and field goals. Now, they're two completely different swings, and people hearing me probably think I'm an idiot. However, Ty Long did an exceptional job in the CFL with the BC Lions, and then he actually played the first three games this year and did did pretty dang good uh, doing all three skill sets until Michael Badgley um, has gotten better. However, they still have McLaughlin now as a field goal kicker there, so they're still waiting on Michael Badgley to, to get better, so just to take the workload off of Ty Long's leg. But if you take kickoffs out, now you have punting and field goals. Hypothetically, if kickoffs get taken out, do you foresee some teams tinkering with one guy doing field goals and punts? That's a great point. And there were, there were many who used to do it. I mentioned that name, Russell Urchley, but there were, there were many back in the day that would punt and place kick. So, uh, and maybe it would become less specialized and your versatility would be rewarded. I mean, right now for a lot of teams, the punter is the place kicker. A lot of them do that, as you guys know. So that's where they're saving on a roster spot if you can do both. Um, and, and the punter a lot of times has to also be the holder um, in certain situations. But, you know, teams will go with that. Some will go with a backup quarterback. So just from a roster standpoint, you're right, though. It would free up another spot. And then maybe it would trend towards, hey, can you punt and place kick? And now we save another roster spot without having to have two guys. That's a good point. And then so here's my last question I have going just going off of this, kicking coaches, all right? So, you know, obviously we see a few that are helping with staffs that have played in the NFL. You know, do you foresee, you know, we, we were hoping that, you know, Chris and I were hoping at some point when, when they added the, the 10th assistant coach for college football that there would be college coaches that would get their head out of their rear end and they would hire kicking coaches to come in and fix all the problems. And no one did it. To my knowledge, no one has done it. So do you foresee kicking coaches getting hired in the next five, seven, ten years at the NFL level? Well, again, uh, you bring up another good point that in the NFL, it is so much more specialized uh, because you look at teams that have three coaches in the defensive backfield. You, you, and I've seen this not just on the Buccaneer staff, but other staffs. You have a guy that's working with the DBs, a guy that's working with the safeties, and then you have a guy that may work just with the slot guy, just the slot corner. That's his specialty. It's become that specialized that uh, inside linebacker and outside linebacker coach, or in the case of uh, um, offensive uh, offensive coaches, you've got an offensive um, an offensive line coach, you've got a receivers coach, you've got a tight ends coach, you've got a running backs coach. It is very specialized. So, uh, look, it's just like anything else. If, if that person has been there, uh, you know, go back to the Boniole example or any other kicking coach that's kicked at the highest level in the NFL and can impart some wisdom just on that specialty, then I think the trend will be that more teams will want to do that. And maybe it will eventually filter down to the college game. I don't know uh, because, again, there's budgetary concerns. It's not the pros. And uh, they've got a special teams coach. So, but in the NFL, there's no such restrictions. And um, and the specialists, it's uh, it's uh, it's definitely something that if you can utilize that person to get the edge and to, and to make more kicks, of course, teams are going to do it. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this: 
around the time when the Bucks hired Chris Boniel, what was it kind of perceived like? Because he was probably the first publicly known specialist coach. And, you know, Brian and I have heard some guys who kind of are like the specialist coach behind the scenes for some teams. But obviously you you mentioned before there's been a history of kicker turnover. What was it kind of perceived like in the Bucks area of bringing in a specialist coach? Well, interesting, it hasn't gotten a lot of play here. And it's, it's uh, you know, not an insult to Chris, but he wasn't a kicker here. So he isn't as known for having kicked here as it would be, for example, in Dallas. And I know he kicked a couple other places too. So um, it did not get as much fanfare. There are fans who are obviously aware of it. The media has talked about it. There have been a couple stories done on him uh, being here. And so... Uh, Again, if the success of Matt Gay continues, then obviously some of that is going to be attributed to Chris helping him. There's no doubt about that. And so it helps his credibility and it helps the credibility of other people having the position uh, on another team. But in this market, there's it hasn't been noticed as much as you might think. It hasn't been played up as much as you might think. And again, that's more so because he's not as prominent for having kicked for the Buccaneers specifically he kicks somewhere else and uh and so therefore you don't know of him as much some will but not everybody will okay cool what were some other maybe maybe just uh trace back to one more kicker that you know pops up in your head and a fun story that you'd like to share Oh wow! All right, so I gave you Caprice's kaput. I gave you I gave you a couple of good ones uh, with Martine Gramatica. Uh, I'm trying to think just off the top of my head if we've ever if we've ever had another one. You know the the Bucks in their history had another kicker, Nigerian-born Donald Igwe Buike, and he uh. is still talked about in and around this market. Uh, he ended up making several huge kicks in the 1980s, again, on bad teams, but he would occasionally make the long field goals. And it was all, it was always neat, uh, because again, this, this was a different time period. The Bucks were bad. They're in the old orange Bucko Bruce uniforms. And a lot of times back in the day, the home games were being blacked out because they weren't sold out. The NFL rules were if your game doesn't sell out, you don't get to see it at home. Well, the, the one thing that we would get to see, was the highlight shows, in particular like the ESPN NFL primetime show, which I was partial to and a huge fan of, Chris Berman, Tom Jackson. So they would sh- it would show Buccaneer highlights, and Berman always used to love to say, Donald Igway Weekend! I remember that. I remember that. So yes, Iggy, as he was known, was a, was a popular figure because of his name, making kicks in the 80s for the Bucks. I can honestly say I never got the chance in the media or in my duties to interview him, but uh, it was it was fun to hear that name and to hear that name being bandied about on the national coverage whenever he'd make a kick. Nice. Well, I got some kind of rapid-fire fun questions about just your experiences as a reporter and being in the media. First of all, who do you think is the best kicker in Bucks history? I, I got to go Martin. I got to go Martin Gramatica. Automatica Gramatica kicked on the Super Bowl team. I got to go him. Okay. Over your years, five of your... Most favorite players to watch play the game? Five anywhere. Anywhere, yep. Could be opponents. The, the first names that come to mind are Jerry Rice, Walter Payton. Again, I'm older uh, in watching them play and, and what they're able to do. Uh, people don't appreciate how good Walter Payton was, how physical he was at the running back position. 
Rice was so far ahead of his time. Uh, it was a, it was amazing to watch. To still watch Tom Brady in the present day be 42 years old and throw the football like he throws the football. How is that guy not in your top five? I got to round out my top five. I got to have a defensive guy. Um, but I'm going to go old school again. Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence Taylor changed the game. The the, the opposing offensive coordinators and head coaches had to now double-team and triple-team Lawrence Taylor. He changed the way that the team's game-planned in the NFL, rushing off the right edge. i got to go Lawrence Taylor. Um, and, and man, i got to come up with one more out of any of it or out of uh, fun ones. Uh, I'll tell you this. He, he is a controversial figure, but he was a phenomenal player for the Bucks for such a long time. He's now in the Hall of Fame. Warren Sapp's got to be in my top five just for the whole thing. Great football player, controversial, not well-liked all the time, definitely would grab attention one way or the other and, and played in a lot of big games and played big in a lot of big games. So Sap would be in my top five, too. How about that? Nice. All right, speaking of big games, can you tell us three of your like favorite game memories that you've ever witnessed in person? All right, the top one has to be Super Bowl thirty-seven, Bucks over the Raiders, Gruden against his old team. I mean, there's nothing that's ever going to compare uh, to that, to winning the ultimate. They've only been there one time. They won it. So, so that one, that one is the top. Um, I, I can, I can honestly say that the first year that I did the games, the first time I had been uh, to Lambeau Field, two thousand five, uh, the Bucks won that day against Brett Favre, and the Packers picked Brett Favre off a couple of times in that game and won the game that day. I will remember that for a long, long time. It's the first time I'd ever been at Lambeau Field. Um, and other than that, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of another one. The, the Bucks played the Rams um, in 2000. The Rams are defending Super Bowl champs. This is the 2000 season after they had won the Super Bowl. It was this wild a Monday night game back and forth in the fourth quarter. The Bucks ended up scoring on a fourth down late in the game. John Lynch intercepted Kurt Warner right after that. Lynch, who's now the general manager of the 49ers, the unbeaten 49ers at the time we're talking, picked off Kurt Warner, who's in the Hall of Fame, and the Bucks won. That is the craziest finish to a game that I think I've been around, especially a Monday night game. Uh, so that one, go, that one goes up there, too. Nice. Now, side note, before I ask these, the last few questions here, about three years ago, I started doing sideline reporting for the Minnesota High School State Playoffs. So I've gotten some experience doing sideline reporting, and actually I was blessed to pick the brain of Jay Feely when he was starting to get into it, uh, and we know him through uh, Tom Feely, who's a mentor of ours, but some media questions Tampa here. guy, too, Jay Feely, Tampa guy. Oh, yes, yeah. yep. Uh, best and worst parts of traveling as a media guy? I can't complain about traveling. We get to go uh, on a charter aircraft. I mean, it's not its not like we're sitting at airports on connecting flights and layovers and flight delays. Uh, the, only, the only thing I would say is when we go on these long trips to London or the West Coast and come back, you're back in the middle of the night. But that's just a minor complaint uh, on that. But by and large, it's, it's neat to get to travel with the team, and I'm not going to complain about that one at all. Easiest and hardest things about being a sideline reporter? Easiest thing is the winning locker room because everybody's in a good mood. They want to talk about what they did. Uh, the hardest thing, especially if you've been losing some in a season or losing a lot in a season, is to constantly have to go to the same guys and talk to them about why it's not working. So I try to vary that up. I try not to go to the same guys over and over and over again. 
because it's unfair to them to keep having to explain losses when a lot of times it may not even be really a lot of their fault as to why they're losing. That individual may be playing great, but it's just whatever's around them is not working and you're not winning. So uh, the, the, that's the tough part of it is if, if you're losing some in the job that I have where you, get, you, know, you have to go in there with a microphone anyway, win or lose, and you get some of those looks, you get some of those glares, like, are you coming back my way again? No, I do not want to do it again this week. So hopefully we don't have too much more of that for this season. Nice. Sideline sideline antics. I mean, Nick Novak with the Chargers a handful of years ago, before viral meant viral, that um, he, he got the camera on him having to go pee, and they put towels <laughs> around him, got on a knee, then, then you got, you know, Odell and and his relationship with the kicking net. Right. I mean, did, have you ever seen, like, a kicker completely whiff the, the net with the ball and go on the stands? Has, has there been any fun? That actually shooters? happened. That actually happened uh, a year ago. I believe it was Chandler Cantanzaro. He missed the net on a practice <laughs> kick. I remember that. During a regular season game. And somebody pointed that out to me because I hadn't seen it and said, hey, he just missed the net and the ball went whistling down past the cheerleaders. <laughs> So, yeah. and and the thing, and I'm not going to, we're going to digress here uh, because we've been doing this for a while now on the interview. The thing about urinating, that happens more often than you realize. And, they, yeah. and the guys try to do it as discreetly as they possibly can. Now, it shouldn't really happen to a kicker or a punter. But the, the players that are, the players that are out there playing 50, 60, 70 plays a game and are, and are hydrating and are getting an IV at halftime or whatever, sometimes you have to go. So that, that yeah. definitely does happen down on the sideline. Yeah. Have you noticed? I mean, this this may be this is really detailed, but um, I, we always preach to kickers on their rep count. You know, they go out there and kick X amount of reps, warm ups. You know, it's the only kick seven, eight, nine, ten times in a game, and then you, you oftentimes have kickers that just go to the net and just bang balls throughout the whole game. Were there any kickers or punters that you just noticed would hit fifty, sixty balls in the net? Seemed like all the time, or do you ever even like look for that? I don't or? pay. I don't pay a ton of attention to who did it more than others. I will right. tell you that for most of them, they are constantly kicking. Whenever you're on offense, they're constantly kicking in the net. The punter will take a turn and kick a couple times, and the place kicker will kick a couple times, or he might kick four or five times. So that's very common and, and has been that way. So I don't know why you wouldn't take advantage of that, as opposed to just standing around and going out there cold without having warmed up some as much as you can. So, yeah, I drove my punter nuts. Uh, Reggie Hodges, he actually he did, he punted in the NFL for like four or five years, uh, finished with the Browns. Um, but my first two years at Ball State, you know, I was young. Uh, I, I grew up in the era of, go, you know, football coach tells you just to go and kick, kick on the side. And, you know, so I kick, was able to kick 80, 90, 100 times almost every day. And, no one told us, you know, hey, watch your rep count because we just didn't have a lot of kicking coaches 15 to 20 years ago. Um, now we're very cognizant and very aware. So um, I just, you know, you know, the punter, Reggie Hodges, was very particular on when he would get his reps with the net. But I was freshman, sophomore, you know, at Ball State. So we would get the ball, you know, on the 20, 25, and I would start going in the net. <laughs> I mean, we weren't even, like, close to, like, midfield. And, and my first couple years at Ball State, we were a little rough. And Reggie was like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, I, I need to get – I'm about to go punt in a minute. And you're sitting – why are you kicking field goals? They're not even close to the 50. 
I'm like, I don't know, I'm just used to doing it. And he's like, I'm going to have to have a talk with you. So, like, he ended up having to, like, sit down and talk to him and be like, look, this is my senior year. Like, this is my sophomore year, his senior year. And, like, you know, I, I got NFL guys coming here um, every week to watch my film. Like, I, 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 we need to come to agreements on, on our routine in here. Like, I would at least wait till they get to the 40 before you get your reps. And I'm like, all right. And it killed me. Like, I, I needed to, like, for some reason, I needed to kick balls in that net until we, until I physically would go out, and then finally I learned, you know, um, and just to chill. And once we got to around like the 45, 50 yard line, then I'd start kicking. But maybe, maybe next, or maybe the rest of the season, maybe you'll start noticing that. I'm curious how Max. Well, I see them, I see them, but I'm paying attention to so many different things. I'm not keeping track of how much it is, and and right. I rarely in my job, people always ask me, "Hey, are you talking to the players down there?" My rule has always been. I don't speak to them first. If they speak to me or say something to me or ask something to me, then I'll answer them happily. I'll smile at them. I'll joke with them. I'll do whatever. Perfect example, we're at the L.A. Coliseum, and I know as we're taping this podcast, the NBA season is opening tonight with the L.A. Clippers and the L.A. uh, Lakers playing each other. And, of course, Kawhi Leonard, the star of the NBA Finals last year for Toronto, has signed with the Clippers. Well, L.A. is still a humongous Laker town, more so than the Clipper town. So in the game at the L.A. Coliseum that we played a couple of weeks ago, they put Kawhi Leonard up on the video board sitting in the front row uh, with a with a Rams hat on, and half the L.A. Coliseum starts booing. They're like, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome from the L.A. Clippers, new free agent acquisition and NBA Finals MVP. Boo! Boo! <laughs> Everywhere. So Bradley Pinion looks at me, standing near me when, they, when that gets over, he goes, my God, what a rough town. He goes, they're booing Kawhi Leonard. I said, it's Hollywood, babe. It's Hollywood. So, <laughs> so we had a little conversation, but it's, it's rare that I talk to them, um, only only if they're asking me something or if they interact with me in a, in a moment, I, I might answer something for them or, or, uh, or do something like that when they're standing around me. So that was just a moment we had at the L.A. Coliseum where they were, they were booing Kawhi Leonard. They wouldn't boo you guys in L.A., but they were booing Kawhi. <laughs> nice. Just going back to one of your comments about just the easiest and hardest things about sideline reporting, uh, just a side story. I had a connection to do um, some like security work at, at U.S. Bank Stadium, and I, but I had a connection to do it at the, the Super Bowl when it was in U.S. Bank Stadium, and uh, I knew the manager, of, of, uh, one of the heads of security, and I ended up being the, the sideline bodyguard for Paul Burmeister the sideline reporter for NBC. So I got to basically follow him around the whole uh, outside of the field, but uh, which was pretty sweet to basically be like three feet from everything. Like, like you know, the the Tom Brady dropped catch, you know, him. I was like five feet from that. I didn't get in. I wasn't in the camp TV screen for all the replays, but it was. I was like right there. But uh, I remember Paul, you know, he was the secondary analyst to Michelle Tafoya, so he rarely didn't do a lot. You know, <laughs> he had it, you know, maybe like, like, uh, talk like four or five times. It wasn't that much. But he was in charge of uh, interviewing the losing coach. So he had Belichick in the end, you know. And I was like, oh, sweet. I'm going to be like two feet from Belichick when they interview him outside the locker room. And Belichick came out, walked right past everybody, and just, you know, went into his, you know, the, the, post, the post-game, like, table where he had answered questions. So it was crazy because I was, like, literally, like, standing right outside the Patriots locker room. Belichick was, like, I, he just walked right past everybody. But it was just... You know, just when you were talking about kind of the hard parts of asking those types of questions, I mean, 
Belichick didn't even want to talk about it. <laughs> so all these reporters were standing there, and they're like, oh, okay, he just walked right by, you know, and then he went out to his of, table. Uh, out of the... Out of the 800 times in those situations, you just witnessed like the 799th time that he would do it that way. The, the one time that he didn't do it that way would be the shocking time where everybody would go, wait a minute, he actually stopped and talked? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's neat, though, that you got to be part of that and, and see that. And it's not lost on me, guys, even all these years later, that it's a privilege to be down there and be around uh, all of this every week in the NFL. Again, I don't get all the replays that everybody gets. I mean, uh, when you're sitting up high in a stadium or if you're at home, you're, you're getting to see a different game than I'm getting to see. But it's still a lot of fun to do what I do and be down at field level for sure. Nice. So, like, looking at the negative side of things, you know, when, when something bad happens, game, you know, missed field goal, whatever, you know, like, are you expected from your higher-ups, you know, like, hey, you have to do this, you have to get this interview in by someone, you have to ask this question? I mean, I'm just curious. It's not, it's not really an edict. It's not something that they order me to do, but it's pretty well understood. If he's missed the game-winning kit in particular, that you're going to have a microphone in there hearing why. And no different than if he's made the game-winning kick very, very early in that post-game show, you're going to hear from him about right. winning the game. So, uh, you know, it stinks. If somebody, it's no different than the other positions. If somebody has screwed something up to lose the game, it just kind of depends on who it is. Uh, a lot of times there, there are guys that will say, hey, come over here. I'll, I'll answer them right now. I'll answer two or three or four questions right now about it, and that's it. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. So it just depends on what it is. Again, we, we prefer to have the happy locker rooms. It's, it's much more fun when you win and get to go celebrate. So here's hoping I get to do that a bunch more here in 2019. Nice. All right, my last two here, TJ. Kind of a new segment for the podcast so we want you to challenge us here. Who do you think would be a good interview for us on the podcast that we can try to reach out to? Well, see, I've already mentioned his name a couple times. You got to track down. I have no idea where he is. If he's still living or whatever, you got to find Russell Erksleben. You got because the guy, the guy I believe was a top fifteen pick. Some people have probably already Googled it during our conversation to find that he may have even been a top ten pick, and he punted and place kicked. Uh, and kicked at the University of Texas. That would be hilarious to talk to him about stories and, uh, and about that kind of thing. So that'd be a good challenge to find him for you on the uh, on the podcast. And uh, I've already pledged to you guys off the air. We'll get Automatica Grammatica to come on and tell some stories about his family, uh, a, a kicking family. The Grammaticas, uh, you know, he and Bill. Uh, I, be- I believe that they were. Uh, they both won a game with a field goal on the same day. I believe they were the first brothers to ever win NFL games on the same Sunday in the same season, obviously, with a field goal. So uh, that's a kicking family. So we'll try to get the uh, we'll try to get Martine on there with you. And uh, and yeah, but I, I'm I'm interested in uh, in all of this and nice. the guys that that, uh, that do what you guys specialize in because it's not easy. They make it look easy. With kicking that, that oblong ball through those uprights. It's not easy, though, as you guys know. Nice. Well, we will we will look into Russell here. First of all, i got to figure out how to spell his last name, but I think that would be a fun interview. So what we want to do to just wrap up the interview here is it's not too often you interview a fellow podcaster, so why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your Three Dog Thursday podcast um, because we're going to start tuning in as well, and, and you know hopefully we'll, we'll talk more about that as well. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity to plug it. It's a lot of fun to predict underdogs in college football and the NFL, and that's what we do for fun. So we talk about point spreads, we talk about who's favored, and we talk about what underdogs we like. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I get some great guests on the podcast. I have some handicappers uh, from the Vegas world and other and other places that come on, and we make underdog predictions, and we keep track of who's who's doing what, who does well. I've had a couple of weeks already this year just as a – is a little thing for your audience where we've uh, I've been able to come through with three successful ones in the college game and in the NFL game. Generally, I try to have one from each, maybe two from college, one from the NFL, or the reverse, one college and two NFL underdogs. And I'll bring guests on that, that make the same predictions. So we have different rationale for why we like this team or that team. I will tell you that at the time we're taping uh, right now <laughs> that uh, – we're, we're looking at a couple of underdogs for this week, in particular the NFL, with the Cleveland Browns be very tasty, getting a ton of points at New England after New England clobbered the Jets. Are they going to be overconfident? The Browns off a bye week. These are the kind of things that we discuss on Three Dog Thursday. So the audience can find the show uh, via Three Dog Thursday on Twitter, the number three, Three Dog Thursday. Subscribe to the show. Simply go to iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Put in Three Dog Thursday. You'll find it there. We're there every week talking underdogs and making underdog predictions. I've got guests on with me, and we do a, we do a pretty fun show about underdogs in college football and the NFL and tell you some things that you didn't know. Like, for example, I'll hit this with you. So uh, it's only appropriate that in the 49ers' victory Sunday that kept them undefeated, it was all field goals, right, guys? You're on the mm-hmm. fourth down experience. It was all Robbie Gold. Do you realize that that was the first time in 12 years the Redskins failed to score, that a team that failed to score still covered the spread? The Redskins were 10-point underdogs and covered the spread without scoring a point, being beaten 9 to nothing. So these are the kind of things that we come up with on Three Dog Thursday. Fun facts and lots of predictions and lots of fun talking college and NFL football underdogs. So thank you for the plug for Three Dog Thursday, guys. Love it. And, hey, guys, make sure you follow TJ at Buck Sideline Guy on Twitter. Again, that's Buck Sideline Guy on Twitter. I just followed TJ, so you have to follow him back. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I joke with people all the time. They're like, how did you come up with that name? I said, it's, it's so much better than TJ's Twitter handle or anything boring <laughs> like that. So I came up with something that, you know, let people know this is what I do. I hang out on the sideline for the Buccaneers in the fall. Awesome. TJ, it's been phenomenal having you on. Really getting a cool, different perspective and hearing some of the cool stories. And we, we wish the best of luck to you guys the rest of the season. Thank you, guys. Great to be with you. So just like that legendary story about Bill Capiz missing the extra point, TJ is kaput now on the <laughs> on the, on the 4th Down Experience podcast. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Well, TJ, appreciate it, and we'll be in touch. Later, man. Guys, you're welcome. Great to be with you. Yeah, thank you. All right, bye. Well, Brian, what did you think of that one? It was a little bit of a, a change in what we do. I thought it was a fun perspective from an analyst media broadcaster perspective. I absolutely love it. Uh, TJ is, is very enthusiastic, as he should be, being a sideline reporter and being in media. He's obviously uh, well-groomed, and he does a good job at, at his profession. And I just really liked hearing all of the cool stories uh, that he had with a lot of familiar-named kickers that, that we know back in the day and that you guys should uh, should definitely do some research on. Uh, it was really cool to hear him talk about the Grammatica brothers. Martin was definitely a guy I looked up to because – he was a short kicker, and so when I had saw in high school that 
a short kicker was kicking in the NFL, it kind of made me feel like I had a chance, you know, to play at the next level, and and then that which led me to to follow Vinatieri's career. But um, I really like uh, I really like TJ. He's he's really cool. Hopefully, we can get down to Bucks game sometime and meet him. That'd be fun. They you know they say the Bucks Pirate Ship Stadium is is pretty legendary to see and experience and. You know, you mentioned Martin Gramatica. I met him as a free agent at the Houston Aguiar Combine one time. I, I can't recall the year, but the Gramatica brothers were there. And I think it was around the time maybe when Martin was a, a free agent. So I just, I, I guess I can't recall kind of which era that was, in be- which teams he was in between. But, yeah, they were nice guys. I mean, I didn't talk to him too much, but obviously told him I was fans of theirs because, like TJ mentioned, you know, the... The excitement and the celebration after every kick was was pretty legendary for their for them, you know, as brothers and what they did. So that was that was pretty sweet. So absolutely, yep. All right, guys. Well, hopefully you enjoyed this one. Um, we're getting a lot of great feedback from all the interviews we've been doing lately, and you know, like our new segment for the show is is challenge us. If you guys feel like we should get a certain guy on the podcast, let us know, and we will do our best to try to get them on the podcast. You know, we got a lot of guys in the queue that said yes to the interviews some some of them we just have to wait to get through the season and and they'll be on so you know keep sharing the interviews too we love that you guys are retweeting it and things like that so appreciate the support and you got you guys all have a great day and we'll i guess we'll see you next week thanks guys follow us in fourth down experience on twitter all right later hey what's up everybody just wanted to let you guys know brian and i have some exciting news brought to you by national kicking rankings we were selected to make the selections for two big camps coming up the first one is for middle school specialists these middle school all-american games are run by the football hotbed organization we're going to have the opportunities to evaluate and select the specialists kickers punters and snappers for the sixth grade seventh grade and eighth grade groups the all-american games run from january 1st to the 4th So it's a great opportunity for you to compete in a competitive environment. The qualifier camp is coming up. We will be running our National Kicking Rankings Camp in Hattiesburg, Mississippi on November 17th. We will have a registration link in the bio. And the second opportunity that we have is we were selected to partner with College Football Today. It's an organization that will run an All-American Bowl game, All-Star game. It's an opportunity to be selected for two All-American All-Star games, one for the 2020 class, And the other is a combination game for the 2021 class and 2022 class. We have two qualifier camps coming up, November 17th in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and December 1st in Atlanta, Georgia. We will have registration links in the show notes, but these are opportunities to be selected as a kicker, punter, and snapper to represent your team, your school, your family, and these All-American All-Star games. We appreciate all your support on the podcast and National Kicking Rankings, and hopefully you can make it to a camp. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the 4th Down Experience. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 4th Down Experience.